And then I thought, okay. So I had it planned in my head. I said, okay, now my sister taking me to Australia. This is a good break. I'll go there. I'll go to Australia. I'll grow up a little bit more, be more mature. Then when I come back, I want to find this guy because I want my face to be the last face he ever sees. Get everyone, Craig from People With A Passion, and thanks for joining me for today's episode. If you haven't yet uh, hit that subscribe button, could you please subscribe to the channel? It's the easiest way you can support what I do is by helping me grow the numbers of subscribers on the channel. Also, hit the notification bell to be advised when new interviews of People With A Passion are actually uploaded. Now, today's guest gives a raw insight into what it's like to be a child soldier. Yik Dang is a refugee who arrived in Australia from Sudan who experienced the life of a child soldier for about five years from the age of 12 to 17 and then he came to Australia faced with the challenges of learning a new language and fitting in to a new society and culture. Uh, he was on the show Look Me in the Eye where he confronted one of his tormentors who ran a child prison in Sudan and this is an amazing story that I feel is worth telling. He's written a book which is out now and the information on the book is in the description below. Please sit down, relax, listen to and or watch this episode of People with a Passion with a Yikshut Dang, The Lost Boy, Tales of a Child Soldier. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. G'day everyone, Craig from People With A Passion. Today I'm being joined by Yikshut Dang, who is a, a former child soldier with the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, and he's here to tell his story. He's actually written uh, a book called The Lost Boy, Tales of a Child Soldier, uh, and it's available now um, through Penguin Publishing at, at most bookstores and online at Amazon and places like that. Thanks for joining us, uh, Yik. How are you going? I'm all right. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me on your show. It's really good for you to share and tell your story. And I don't want you to give too much away because you do have a book, but I want you to give a little bit of backstory around your journey in life and how you came to be a child soldier. So before you became a child soldier, what was life for you in Sudan? The life was just normal, just living as a, a tribal boy. I was in a tribe, you know, taking care of my cattle live with families, uncle, aunties, and that was just a life before the war. And you say you're part of a tribe. What was your tribe? What, who were your tribe? I'm from Dinka tribe. Dinka is the largest tribe in Sudan. When did life change for you? So you mentioned that war came. I think the war started in 1983, but I was still a young boy in the tribe. And uh, from there... You know, all different tribal people travelling through my village, heading to Ethiopia. And I was just thinking, where are they going? And I got told by some of the elders, these peoples are going to Ethiopia to get trained. So when they come back, they're going to go and fight the Arab, mm -hmm. which is the north, north side of Sudan. So I don't know much of the history, yeah. and that's why I've got you on. And a lot of people probably don't know much of the history, particularly in the Western world because it's not a part of the world that we venture to so you've got to take us there a little bit with the way you you know describe for us today your experience Sudan now is a new nation the yep. war's over how long was that process 
Because I really don't know the history. When I came here, I locked myself no, out of it. I just want to fit in. That's, that, that was what I wanted to do. Your new life here in Australia, you pretty much started a new life here for yourself when you got out of that. So as far as what happened in Sudan, you didn't want to follow it because I guess you're putting it behind you. Yeah, because I felt like, what's my problem? How big can my problem be? What about other people? Everybody got a problem. So I might as well just forget about it and try to fit in the society. Mm -hmm. And after a while, it just it didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. I started having, you know, nightmares, and the nightmares turn into a day, into daydream, which yeah. is like daytime. I'll be sitting there, and something will just come in my head. Mm -hmm. I'll be thinking, well, what's this? But because it was just stuff from the war. I do want to go back to your childhood. Yeah. So, because <clears throat> I want to understand how you came to be recruited. Mm. So, so that's the question: is you had people coming in and out of the your village or yeah. wherever you were at the yeah. time, and you saw them coming, going to be trained in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And then years later, no, not years, if month later, they rock, they come back. Probably not just month. Like, let me say it again: they went through my village, heading to Ethiopia to get trained. And then after a while, nine months or a year, they start pouring back with guns. So what I did, I go and hang around the soldiers, helping them out. Mm -hmm. When they slaughter a cow, when they kill a cow, I go and help skin, skin the cattle for them, skin the cow for them, helping them. And then I start talking to soldiers, you know, you know, where are you, where are you guys getting gun? Are we getting gun from Ethiopia? Where, where we going to fight the Arab? All right. And then they start telling me, you guys, are the, you guys are the next generation. Soon you're going to go and get your gun and you're going to fight for our land. And I thought, okay, that's good. The first group that went to Thiep, when they came back, my brother came and he wanted to join the army. He volunteered. And on his way to, to join the rebel, he was, killing the, he was killed just not far away from my village. Mm. My people, some of my people, the guy who killed my brother, his, his clan is not far away from me and his dinka. Mm. And uh, my brother was killed in execution style. Okay. He shot him at the back of the head. Mm -hmm. And all my brother did, my brother was just telling him, say, man, because they were traveling at night through the village. Yeah. And this guy, he just kept firing his AK-47. And my brother said, please, you can't do that. We got old people sleeping, children asleep. You know, you're going to scare them. Yeah. yeah, whatever. And he just kept going, keep doing the same thing. After a while, my brother took a gun of him and he said, I'm going to hold your gun until you calm down. So they walk, they walk, they walk. After a while, my brother thought, yeah, this guy's all right. I'll give him back his gun. He gave him back his gun. He took it. Then my brother started walking. My brother had his own gun. This guy loaded up his gun and then shot my brother the back of the head. Mm. And a few months later, maybe two months or even a month, we received my mom received a message. My people in my tribe that you, your your son was killed. They told my mom that, and you know it was very sad. You know. 
How, I cried when he left. I cried so much when he left. How how old was he compared to you? And I think how, it was it was twenty five. And how and how how old were you at the time? At the time, probably about nine, ten before I went to the rebel. Yeah, so that's a tragic story of your brother, and that was the start of the experience, I guess, of war for you. Yep. To understand that yes, these soldiers were coming in and being trained, but it hit close to home so how did you come to at that age at age 10 be recruited into that same at that time at that time i wasn't recruited yet i was just helping soldiers learning learning how to use gun i learned to use gun before i was trained i can especially ak-47 i pull it apart i used to pull it apart for the for the big boys clean the gun for them Mm Give it to them, you know, after clean. So that's that's so that's what I did at that time, at that age. Sure. So by the time I joined the army, I knew what to do with a gun. And how many other boys in your village would have had that experience of helping as well? Like you were one, but was it something you were yeah. idolising at a young age? These soldiers, because they was there an initially some sort of looking up to them. Do you think at the beginning, yeah, because they they, they got the fighting for my country. So I was I liked the idea that I. No one can come and terrorize you in your land. Mm-hmm. So this is what you got to do. At the same time, they're telling me what to do. And I agree with them. Yeah. If I invite you to my house as a guest, you just, you got to come to my house and just as a guest. You're not going to take over. No. So what they were telling me is just like what Arab did. So they came to our land, they took over, used as a slave. Yeah. But we can't, do, we can't let them do that to us. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're fighting them. And we want you to do the same thing. And that's what the big soldiers were telling us. Because, you know, when the war began and then my, my brother was killed, uh, uh, this, you know, at the beginning of the war, and all of a sudden I started seeing soldiers come with a weapon and they told me you can have one too. And then from there something is stuck in my head. Okay, the guy who killed my brother, I might be able to find him one day. Yeah. But how am I going to get him? Mm-hmm. And so it took your, a while. So your mindset became around revenge at that point. Revenge, hmm. you know. And, and anger. I had the ideas that an eye for an eye, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I can't kill you and then I'm going to leave. What's the difference? You know, that's that's what I had in my mind. Yeah. So when I joined the rebel, when I first joined the rebel, I had still had the idea and I was very young, but I had this thing in my head one day. Yeah. I think this guy will get to see me. Mm-hmm. So you, so you ended up in the child prison in Ethiopia, and there was a first talk. was child trained. I went to get trained, trained. So and then from there, I just couldn't handle it. I ran away. I yeah. stayed there. I went for training for at least two months. And how many kids would you think numbers oh, wise would be getting trained at your age? What age would time, you be? At the time, probably maybe a thousand at that time. I can't tell you, but so, roughly about a thousand. So if you tried to escape that situation, you were rounded up and imprisoned more or less in Ethiopia. Do I understand that? Yeah, I was at the border. We were the border. So Ethiopian, we don't even see them. They're far mm. away. Yeah. But we're just at the border of Ethiopia and Sudan. Yeah. So, and even if I escape, I'm only going three kilometers away. Yeah. Because that's where the refugee is. The refugee camp is three kilometers away or two kilometers away. Yeah. And this is a training camp, child soldiers training mm. camp. And they were adult training camp. Yeah. And there's child soldier, and then there's refugee. So if I run away from here, I'm not going that far. I'm only going to the refugee camp. 
Yeah. I'm not running back to Sudan because I'll probably get killed by other tribe on the way. Yeah. So you just go to the refugee camp. A few days later, they rock up yeah. looking for, you know, child soldiers, those who ran away or the new one that just arrived because mm -hmm. there were trucks arriving every day, yeah. every day from Sudan to, to that refugee camp because the whole Sudan was just running away. Mm -hmm. So all the tribal, which is the south. So we all heading to Ethiopia, even though we have some other people back home, but all the young ones were running to Ethiopia and some of the middle-aged, some of the old ones want to run away, don't want to live in Sudan, we all went that way. This is tough for you. Like this, this process has got to be tough for you, going through telling stories and trying to, and this is part of the thing you've been trying to escape, but trying to put it in a cohesive sort of story and that's probably where the book helps or has helped. Yeah, but yeah like, I, like I said earlier, you know, all these interviews that I've been doing, it bring a little bit of memories back, but at the same time, it's healing. Mm. Years ago, I used to just, I used to sit in front of TV, and whenever I watch SBS, anything to do with the news about war, tears come. Mm. And when my family asked me, I said, I'm all right, I'm all right. It's just the bloody, you know, people fighting, because yeah. that's what I tell them, but they didn't know what was going in my head, what was going in my mind. It was just a flashback. Yeah. So whenever I see, yeah, people, you know, like war, Syria, Iraq, back at the time, I'll just, I'll cry. Yeah. And and then when they talk, to me, yeah, yeah, it's all right, it's all right. I'm just feeling for these people, but I was doing it for myself. So as a child, most people aren't experiencing what you've experienced at ages 10, 11, 12, right up to the age of 19 when you left. You know, like when I went to school, I never told a lot of people about my life. Yeah. Some of the, some of my uh, classmates that I went to, all they knew I was a child soldier, but they didn't know what I went through. But when they watched the show, there's one of the guys that he written a piece in there mm -hmm. that Penguin ended up putting there. Yeah. That individual at school that said they didn't realize what you were going through and they didn't get the facts. So, so you were keeping this mask to the outside world, including family, that of how you actually felt. You know, when I went to school, it was just like just daily. We go to school, you know, a little, small, uh, little break. We go there, play basketball, lunch, play basketball, after school, play basketball. And all they knew about me is just, I'm from Sudan. I was uh, a boy soldier, but they didn't know exactly what I went through until the watch the SBS show. And that's when I started getting messages. Yeah. Sorry, I, I thought you were just normal at school. Mm. How did you do it? I just said, because, you know, I, I, I didn't want to talk about it because I felt like, you know, my story is just like all of you guys. Everybody had their own problems. So mm -hmm. why is mine the big deal? But, it came back and haunted me. Like I had dreams, you know, here and there, and it just brought everything all back. And especially, it just got worse when I ran into the guy that used to torture me, the guy yeah. who ran the prison. So let's talk about that uh, interaction. And you mentioned you're on um, Look Me in the Eye, which was an SBS program, which sort of prompted you in or, or got the ball to the rolling book. to yeah. write the book. So let's let's, talk, let's about. talk about this interaction, this meeting that that you had 
with one of the tormentors who ran the prison and the story and why this individual came to be one of your people that you had to confront? Well, you know, I volunteer, you know, to get into the rebel from the beginning. You know, I went in there and said, because my auntie, you know, had a husband. Her husband was, it was a captain in the rebel. So she protected me. She said, no, you can't go, you can't. I said, no, but look at all these children. They got guns. They're young. I'm bigger than some of them, so why can't I join and get trained and get my own gun? Yeah, but not now. You do then later. After a while, she gave up. She said, you go. So I joined. The, I, was, I remember the day I was dropped for the training. Mm-hmm. You know, After two months, I couldn't handle it. I ran away. I went to the refugee camp. The refugee camp was like two, three kilometers away. And a few days later, uh, the, uh, the rebel came, or which is the soldiers anyway, to get us, get all the child children in the, in the refugee camp to go back to the train. And then they found out that escape. And that's when the, that's when the beating began. That obviously put a target more or less on you as, a, as I guess, a weak individual and then for a risk or a threat, a flight risk, I suppose. Yeah, and then if they found out that you ran away, so you get punished more than anyone that was arrested within the camp because you were supposed to be trained and then you ran away. So they used fear as a means of control, I imagine. So they, they used younger and other people as an example of if you do this, then this is going to happen to you. Yeah, this is going to happen to you, exactly. And it, it did happen to a lot of child children. At the time, I didn't, I didn't think like it was bad because happening to everybody is happening to everybody. Mm-hmm. When, every, when things happen to everyone... So why would you think that you are treated different? Mm-hmm. You know, so it was happening to a lot of child soldiers that ran away. So he, what what were some of the things that he he would actually have done that you can speak to? Oh, he, for example, you know, they call it discipline, where as soon as they get you back, you get a you get taken to the river, they dip in the water, mm-hmm. bring you out with your shirt, and then you roll on the sand, hot sand. You're all 20 metres that way, 20 metres this way. You just got to keep doing it until you draw, your shirt dry on your back. And then you got to stand up. And then you got to run 50, 60 metres. Back and forward, back and forward. Then you got to stand on one foot for even an hour. And every time the other foot takes the ground, you got three people around you and they start whipping you. And if they're not whipping you right, he will take it of them and he'll whip them, he'll beat them first so they can beat your heart. Mm. And then you get it, get tied up, you know, your, 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 your elbow, no, your, yeah, your elbow tied up to your ankle. So you, you're sort of like sitting on your chest and you're just tied up like that. Mm. And you've been in the sun for that long. You, you know, there was, there was a time when you cry until you can't cry anymore because your lungs just out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for the for most people watching their experience of being a young person, like a child. That sort of experience is unimaginable because that's not their experience, and and that's why you've struggled and and understandably struggled to deal with this and bottled this up for such a long time. And it wasn't just your experience; it's also experienced still to this day in some parts of the world where there are other child soldiers. But you came 
to Brisbane with your family. So your family managed to you managed to find yourself escape from the situation. How long were you involved with the rebels, and um, and then how long were you before you then had your family get you to here? I was I was in the rebel for about five years before my sister got me out. And and how did she come to get you out? Because she she found out where I was, and I was with my auntie and her husband. So I was at the border of Uganda and Sudan. Mm-hmm. And what we were doing there, just bringing weapon in from from Uganda to Sudan and distribute them to the to the rest of the to to the area that we were. Yeah. So you your sister got you out, but were your family already? They were in refugee camp, or where were they as a, yeah, as a group? She took them out one by one. Because okay. at the time, because when Ethiopia had their own fight, their own war, we ran back to Sudan. We yeah. ran back to Sudan. Then from Sudan, my sister started taking one by one, take them to a refugee camp, and then before I know it, I was next. Yeah. And she found where I was and took me to, uh, to Nairobi, which is capital mm-hmm. city of Kenya. So she sounds like an amazing woman. Your yeah, she, sister. She, she she done a lot. Not just not just to my family, mm, to, to a lot others. of uh, other Sudanese people who are here in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Sydney, Canberra, Brisbane, Melbourne, Perth, a lot of people. So she's somewhat of a hero, I guess, within yeah, your yeah, community. She, she done so much. Yeah. Yeah. So her story'd be worth telling too. Yeah, her story. She's got a big story than mine. Mine was just within the rebel, but she done a lot of other good thing, yeah. you know, for families who are here today. Do you know much about the process of getting your family here to get refugee status and be placed here in Australia? I imagine that's done through uh, international organisations to help get you here. At the time, I didn't know much because when she brought me to Kenya, I ran away. Mm-hmm. I went trying to head back to Sudan because I, I, I didn't feel like I, fed, I, I fit in the country. Yes. You know, because I didn't know how to speak Swahili. I didn't know. She put me to school and I didn't fit in. I didn't know English. I didn't know anything. So, so she I just, was... I felt like I'm one of the dumbest kids at school. So did she try to establish you guys in Kenya more or less like as a unit in, and yeah. introduce you into that environment thinking we're going to be safe here? Yeah, we're going to be safe here in case we don't get to go outside Africa, at least we're in Kenya. So she's trying to put me to school. So I went to boarding school. I didn't like it. Yeah. From there, I ran away from boarding school. I went back to her and I said, hey, you got to give me money. You got to send me back to Sudan because I'm useless. I'm not doing anything. Yeah. Yeah. I go to school. Everybody's speaking Swahili. They're speaking the best English ever. And I don't know nothing. So what what was the decision around your family coming to Australia? Did, whatever she did, I think she can't. She went to immigration, Australian immigration, because at, at the time, well, you're allowed to go anywhere. They can give you refugee status that you can travel to UK, yeah. you can go to Canada, you can go to America, you can go to Australia. But I was t- hoping that to go to America at the time. Yeah. That's because that's where a lot of my friends went to. Sure. You find yourself um, in that process successfully accepted to come to Australia. Where did you uh, end up? First, I spent a night in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. We came here at night time. The next day, around 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, went to Toowoomba. 
and and you basically were raised in Toowoomba most and yeah. stayed in Toowoomba most of your uh, life from leaving Sudan or, or yeah, pretty from much leaving Sudan is straight to there. So and how we, scary we, we were the second black family in Toowoomba at the and, time. And how scary was that for you? Again, you went from you're still not able to speak the language. So yeah, but I felt I felt better because. I felt like these people, they're not my color. They, they all understand me. I came from a different country. Mm-hmm. But when I was in Kenya, they got black people like me, and I just feel like, I just felt like I'm one of the dumbest ones around. Yeah. But coming here, I felt like they're white people. I'm a black person. I'm from a different continent. They're from me. They all understand why I don't know the language. Yeah, of course. And so I just look at it that way. Yeah. So how hard was school for you, though? The school was hard. Yeah. It was hard, but... I put everything into it, me and my brothers, you know. Even yeah. th- there was a time I used to tell my brothers, please, even though you don't know English, just try to pretend you talk English instead of your own language. Because yeah. back in Africa, I experienced a lot of uh, racism, especially in Ethiopia and then in Kenya, you know, and at the border of Kenya and Somalia because I lived there. You know, people were very racist. Black people are the most racist people I've ever met, mm. even though I'm black. And you know? and you still experience racism here, no doubt, though. So because racism yeah. exists everywhere, and when it, you're de- noticeably I, different, I do. But in Western, only a drone will come to you and say to your face. But a lot of people sort of hide it. Oh, look at that black. Look at this. You know, at least they're hiding it. You know, they don't. Only the drummer walked in and said, you're black, this and that. Yeah. You know, so I had that. Yeah, okay. But it's not as bad as how I, my own people, whether they're Ethiopian or Somalian, you know, how they used to abuse me because of my skin. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I've not heard that experience from someone describing the racism within their own, uh, you know, people or their own colour. Um, I find that. something that baffles me i know racism exists everywhere but it just goes to show that people will find a reason to to hate on anyone regardless it It, it really is it is true it's not just me a lot of other child soldiers who were with me went through it yeah you know i i had fight in kenya here and there because of racism and i just came from sudan you know like i still got that rage yeah as a as a child soldier in my mind, you know, like whenever someone, you know, they, they do spit at you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they, they spit at you like that. Mm. And I'm thinking, you're black. I'm black. But I, I didn't tell the difference back then. Yeah. I just said, okay, they're lighter than me. Maybe they got a point. Yeah. I'm, I'm too black. So maybe that's why. Now, when I look back now, some of the people that used to abuse me back in their country, they're here with me. Mm. They're here with me. And I, I just, I just say in my mind, okay. If I ask one of them, what do you think a white person would call you and me? We both black, even though you used to call me black. Mm. You just got a light skin. That's a different. But we all classify as black. You were diagnosed later. And this is, I imagine, after school that yeah. they, they knew something was wrong, but you were misdiagnosed. And then later found to have PTSD. But how long were you misdiagnosed with your initial uh, mental health assessment? I was, I, was, uh, I was given a schizophrenia for about eight years. 
I think after eight years of taking all that drugs, I started asking myself. I said, okay, first I got totally going to get better. Now, I thought I was going to get better after two years, three years, four years, and now it's eight years. I stopped myself. Yeah. I stopped taking them. And I went to my GP and I said, hey, I have a different GP now. I want to be a, I want to be a cess again. And after they found out that I was suffering from a post-traumatic stress disorder, they said that, okay, we're going to give you medication for, for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I said, no. Mm-hmm. This might be another misdiagnose, you know. Ask top. That experience and this experience has been really hard for you, but the writing of this book has helped you along the journey. Do you want to speak to a little bit of the process at the moment of why writing this book has been hard, but also therapeutic, more or less, something that has helped helped you? Yeah. At the beginning, I never wanted to talk about my life, like I said earlier, and. The thing is, a lot of child soldiers that were with me, they experienced the same thing. There are child soldiers right now who lost most of their family. Brother, father, mother, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I was lucky, you know. I lost my, my dad at the start of the war. So is my brother. Do you know what I mean? But the rest of my family are here now in Australia, which is the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. So I don't know what where I would be now if I lost all of them in the war. I don't mm-hmm. think if I'll if I live this long. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. You'd have nothing to live for. I have for. nothing to live for, you know? But I got younger sister, mother, brothers, do you know what I mean? So yes. I feel I'm one of the one of the luckiest child soldier, especially in Western, you know? Because I, I have friends here in Brisbane, you know. Yes. They were child soldiers. Yes. You know? Some of them Lost their family back home. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The father, the brother, the uncle, the cousin, most of their family. You know, so I know what. There are people that went through worse than I am. Yeah, sure. You know? And even though I never wanted to talk about my story, but the opportunity just represents itself. Yeah. The child soldiers that you know, how many do you think have experienced or have the same post-traumatic stress disorder and are trying to deal with this in the same way as, as you are? Not many. Not many trying to deal with, trying to deal with it the same way I did because where I come from, people don't talk about their mental problem. If you have a mental problem, you don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, When you open up about it, it's sort of like your weakness. I had people that used to, when I first started medication, I had some Sudanese, they used to think that I am mental when I was on medication because I open up. And if it wasn't the girlfriend who I had at the time and she was an Aussie, there's no way I'll go and see a counsellor. Mm-hmm. But because I was helped by her mother. After I separated with her, her mother said, I think you might need to see a counsellor because you, you got a bit of problem that we need to just sort out and counsellor can help you. Yeah. And I said, no, I don't have any problem. My problem is the girl just left me. That's my problem. And then that's where I was misdiagnosed. So you went to seek help, but you got the misdiagnosis. Yep. So that And the help that I went there first was just because I just separated my girlfriend. She mm. left me. And then from there, put on wrong drugs. Eight years later, no. Yeah. You never had it. Yeah. So that's an amazing story within itself. And it is in the book. So I'm yeah. talking to a Yi Chut Dang 
who's written the book The Lost Boy, Tales of a Child Soldier. So please check out the book online on Amazon um, and you can go into bookstores. It's in circulation now. And you've been fortunate enough to have Ray Martin, who's one of our uh, Australia's favourite journalists and most experienced and respected journalists, has written the uh, forward of, of the book. So that's pretty good. How did you come to meet Ray? And, and he's been a very big supporter of you with, with your journey. Well, I met, I met Ray on set of uh, Look Me in the Eye. Yeah. You know, I didn't meet him first. I met him while he's introducing me to meet Anyang, my, uh, the prison guard. So let's talk so, about yeah. him because we, we kept trying to touch on it and we'll finally get this in now. So you're on the set of Look Me In The Eye, which is a program where people confront and tell yep. uh, people who have hurt them in their life's journey, yep. Yep. for those who haven't seen the show, where they try to make amends. So... Firstly, you bumped into him at a church, so well before the show, yep. you actually saw him, you attended a church service and actually literally bumped into one of your tormentors from the prison in well, Ethiopia. What happened was, that, you know, there was a wedding, so a friend invited me, said, oh, there's a wedding here in the church at Annerley, you should come. I said, all right, I'll come, because I didn't go to church often back mm -hmm. then, I said, I'll come. I went there and, uh, yeah, the bride and the groom got married and there was big feed and everything. And at the end of the service, people were just having a chat. Yeah, okay, good to see you, Craig. Yeah, okay, i got to go. And then I looked to my right and I saw his face and I'm thinking again. My mind, my heart started beating. I said, hey, this is the guy that used to run the prison. This is Anyang. It was that moment where you pinch yourself to, to double check. Because I was in church, I thought, is God talking to me in my head or is this true? And then I realized it was true. I went back straight away, jumped in my car. I went home. While I was down, just thinking. Everything came back quick. Yes. And I just, I look at myself now, I say, okay, I'm strong. I'm big. This guy has no power. And I can do anything I wanted to do to him. I can't even kill him mm. with my hand. And then everything was just pouring in my head. It took me about 40, 40, to 40 minutes to an hour, you know, to, for the memories to start pouring in. And then I decided to go back to church, but it was the end of the service. Mm -hmm. The church was closed, and, and then from there I said, there's no point. I never went back to that church again until SBS took me there for reenactment. Yeah. So how did you come to be and tell your story on that show and, and fake confront him as a tormentor? How did that happen? After the church, I ran into him uh, probably a few years later. Yeah. And at a friend place. Yeah. And. Uh, what was that experience like? I was, to sit and... I was drunk. Yeah. I was drunk when he was drunk. And okay. We were just drinking. It was somewhere around Woodridge. Okay. So I walked to him. I said, Young, you remember what you done to me in the past? He said, I know. I remember everything. I said, I said, man, you're lucky. Australia saved your life. And at the same time, Australia saved my life. 
because I told him if I found you in Africa and young, where you had no power, I wanted to kill you with my my bare hand. Mm-hmm. So you confront him on the show. Uh... Yeah, when I came face to face him on the show, it was, it was pretty hard. Ray Martin interviewed me before that. I said, what happened if Anyang doesn't come on set? I said, if he, if he doesn't come today, just tell him, ring him and tell him that I forgive him. Because I didn't want to live with the anger. I was very angry all them years. But when I ran into him, I just thought, if I get to ask him a few questions for why he did what he did to me and why he did what he did to other children, I might move on with my life, you know? And that's what, he, that's what happened exactly, you know? After I came face to face with him on this show where we just asked some serious question that I asked I ask him on, on the show, a question that I didn't ask him at start. He said, how many people die in the prison that you are running? You know, and I asked him, you know, because there's one guy, he, get, he got his two arm amputated, and that was after he was tied up, mm-hmm. exactly the same way he used to tie me up. But this guy was tied up for a week, or for a few days. Mm-hmm. And then after they took the, the rope out of his arm, it was infected. By the time you go to hospital, which is, it's not like hospital, Australian hospital, this is Bush Hospital. Yeah. When they took him in there, they said, nah, it was too late. So his arm was amputated. And Anyang told me, he told me that the guy is in Canada. I told him, I said, Anyang, if that guy was here now, I probably would have cut your arm so you'd be the same like him. You have no arm like him. Cause that's I felt I felt angry, yeah. And you know it's, it's hard to explain, man. You you have to be in in someone. You know you know that saying. Say if I put you in my shoes, you'll understand. Mm. If you were in my shoes, you'd probably say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And what adds, I guess, salt to to the wound too is this individual's cousin was actually the man who took your brother's life so there's this association as well that in your mind that's something that that he's he's related so there's a there, there's a connection there that that i imagine yeah. sort of makes it even harder to know that he the thing is i didn't know at the time when i was getting trained uh, we went different way he went and fought somewhere and i went different way fought in different area I didn't know that was his cousin. When I came, to, then before I came to Australia, my mom told me. Yeah. She said the guy who killed your brother is from a, a, uh, this clan called this and that. And then I worked out because I knew where Anyang was from. Yeah. And the guy is a distant cousin to him. Mm. And then I thought, okay. So I had it planned in my head. I said, okay. Now my sister taking me to Australia. This is a good break. I'll go there. I'll go to Australia. I'll grow up a little bit more, be more mature. Then when I come back, I want to find this guy because I want my face to be the last face he ever sees. Yeah. Because I, I had a message that I was going to tell him. I was going to tell him. My brother is waiting for you. 
and he sent me to send you to him. Yeah. Psst. Yeah. So, I mean, and that that's that feeling, even in our conversation, and you were talking about meeting your tormentor, that that situation also for you has, has created a scenario where when you went away for the 40 minutes, all those things with your tormentor also came through. If you need to take a break, take a break. So obviously that story of, you know, you're wanting revenge of your brother's death um, is a story that takes you to a very dark place, but you've more or less moved on from that now, yeah? Yeah, I've moved on, you know. I don't think the same way I used to at the time, you know, because, you know, there's so much to live for now. There's so much to live for, I realise. I used to gamble with my life. Yeah. You know, I pull a gun. Anyone, anyone that, especially are my ranks, not high rank people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're with me and then you give me crap, I pull a gun on you. I didn't care. Yeah. Like I told you earlier, I got a friend here who, who's a police officer now. He's a liaison police officer. He used to be in the army. He knows me pretty well. He even remember telling me, remember when you pull a gun on this guy? And I was like, with guy, I can't remember. I pull a gun on many people, yeah. all that sort of thing. But now when I look back, I say, I was just that close mm. to be what, killed by anyone. One of your stories you, you told me off camera when we first connected was one of the first things as a 12-year-old that you would do when you woke up in the morning is think, A, I'm still here, and B, my gun's still with me. So that you're absolutely in survival mode when you're in that situation, yeah? Yeah, during, during the war, you know, because... There are people that used to steal guns, take them back to the tribe. So whenever you go to sleep, you want to make sure that when you wake up, you got your gun yeah. next to you, no one stole it, and you're alive. You know, they're the first thing that you need to make. I've got my gun. I'm alive. Yeah. You know? So most people's experience at the age of 12, if, if people think about what they were doing at age 12, that's a pretty serious situation to be put in where you're at age 12 where most kids would be playing and going to school to actually find themselves in that yeah you know because by the time i grow it took me about a year to get trained by the time i graduated it was just god i got a gun yeah i felt like no one can muck around with me anymore yeah. you know the best thing that ever happened is i never squeeze a trigger yeah you know, I was just, I look back now, okay, what would happen? But I think they say everything happened for a reason. Mm. Mm. And thanks God that I never pull a trigger yep. to anyone that was with me. Yeah. So, the rest is all in the book. Yeah. Make sure you, know you I mean? check out the book. So I'm, I'm joined by Aikshut Dang, who has written the book, The Lost Boy, Tales of a Child Soldier. Um, so we'll give you information on where you can get hold of the book uh, here in, in Australia and around the world. Ang Young is your person that you connected with on the show, Look Me in the Eye, and he did come in and speak with you, um, and you had the chance to to talk to him, and you forgave him. How big was that process for you, and how is your relationship with him today? Oh, man. I hated Ang Young with passion. I never ever thought that I'll forgive him, but something happened. 
I don't know, it's just, you know, after I talked to him, you know, came face to face with him, he said sorry, and then after this show, I went there, took my little boy to meet him. And after that, I, I spent a whole week with him at his place. After work, I used to go there and sleep there. You know, I got to know him better, you know, like a, he's a father, he's, he's a grandfather, and, you know, he loves his family, and I, you know, we just, we start joking around. I, you know, I tell him young, but when I was in Africa, I wasn't joking, I would have killed you, but he, you know, you are, you're a lucky man, so am I. Mm. So, I just want you to move on with your life, be happy. Yeah. Take care of your children, your grandchildren. You know, we came. We were safe for a reason. Because if he was in the war, Anyang would have died at the mm. front line. Because he was good at what he does. I can imagine what he did to us. Just imagine him against the enemy. Just mm -hmm. give him the gun. Yeah. He told Ray Martin how you know how he fought in the war, and I believe everything he said. Yeah. You know what I mean? You you also describe with him when you spent your time with him for that week that you got to ask him a number of questions and, and the questions that would come up is the big why. But he also was fearing for his life because that's part of the system that indoctrinates you into a military in that scenario when you're in a rebel group. So he was like, if I didn't do this in some instances to you guys when the bosses were around then I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And then you also spoke spoke of individuals that were whipping you, and if they didn't do that properly, they were then whipped. Whip, so, yeah. so this whole system where some people were doing some terrible things to each other that probably went against their morals. But you also questioned him on, but when the bosses weren't there, you were still doing Yeah, when the boss wasn't there, he still do what he does to us when the boss is there. And that's what pissed me off the most. Yeah. I felt like because he knew he had the power, he can do whatever he want to do without a boss. Mm -hmm. So maybe he was just showing off. And he was very tricky. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes he'll put his gun down there, you know. And I'll be thinking, if I go and grab that gun and trying to pull a trigger, what will happen? Maybe it's a setup. Yeah. All that sort of thing, you know. And, and young head of mine. Mm -hmm. And he, I think... He became smarter at a very young age. He picked, I don't know how to pick everything up, you know? Yes. And that's why that's how he was employed as a prison guard, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know? It was 16, 17 at yeah. the time. So yeah. you can just think, a 16, 17 running a prison. Yeah. yeah and there's 50 children cannot, so 10, he's... 20, 30 children can go in there and he's ran by a, a 16, 17 year old. When you think of that, mm. that means that he had a brain. Yeah, Do you know sure. what I mean? So it's interesting because that's the first moment you've mentioned his age of that. So I'm visualising uh, someone who's senior. So he's still, in our understanding, that's a, mm. uh, in, in Western society, that's still categorised as a child. So he's a child running a child's prison. Yeah. So, and uh, yeah, so that's that's a, an absolutely um, amazing story. But you've mended those hurts now with him, recognising you're both in a bad situation. Yeah, I, I, for, I forgive him because I think... He said he had to do what he had to do. I said, all right, Anyang. But the thing, I, I look back, I'm lucky to be here in yes. Australia. There are hun hundreds to thousands of people who would love to come to Australia mm. right now. But 
they can't. So I'm lucky to be, I didn't want to waste my life because if I did what I wanted to do to them, where am I going to go? I'm just yeah. going to go to jail, so die in jail. Do you, do you ever look at Australians and feel we take some things for granted as oh. well or no? Yeah, my iPhone is broken, <laughs> yeah, my this, my that. This is nothing. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, because that's how, that's, that's the level of what can get you there. What 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 got you? It made my car. Somebody crashed into my car. My world just came down. I lost my job. I only get, you know, six hundred dollars a week. That's not enough. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, so there is. Yeah, but I don't blame them because they're expecting more of what they can get at that moment. Do you and, know what I mean? So it's just yeah. that's how life is. I I think life has a funny way. If I don't know, funny is the right word to use, but we. You can always find someone in a worse situation than you, and even with your experience as a child soldier, while that seems extreme, you could probably and have seen stories that have upset you, maybe because it's relatable, but also recognising that, like, you've got a way, yes, you're scarred with your post-traumatic stress disorder and, and everything you're dealing with, but at the same time, you've got a situation where you mentioned someone who had lost both his arm. arms and things yeah. like that. So you could almost say, well, his experience was similar, but he's walked away and he's living in Canada and he's probably grateful for... That he's fact- alive. Exactly. Yeah. So so you can always look to examples and... Of, of- and think of, think of the worst. The worst that could happen is not to exist. Mm. And I've worked that out. So I shouldn't complain. I'm alive. This, yeah. That's the first thing. Second, I've got my family. Yeah? yeah. You know, I had people... Shootings. This guy went and shot someone in the head. Mm. And then I had the gun. Bang. And then a few seconds later, bang. I walk in there. We walked in there. Because we just thought maybe a gun going off. Somebody cleaning mm. a gun. See, what well, the guy, the guy who shot the guy, the guy that he shot died. Then mm. when he shot himself, he didn't aim it properly. Uh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And all that sort of thing is, I feel that. like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as mad as no. other people who go and pull yeah. a gun. Something is always holding me back, yeah. which I'm grateful for, you know. Yeah. When I, I think of them that pull a gun, kill someone, and I know them. Mm. And I'll be just going, okay, that's a dead person. We've got to take him somewhere, you know. And, and the funny story about this guy he shot a guy, he killed a guy, but when he pulled a trigger on him, he didn't pull it properly. Mm-hmm. And then me as a child, I was thinking, okay, because he died half an hour later, the yep. guy who shot the guy. Do you know what I mean? Because yep. I don't know, maybe he was scared. He didn't want to kill himself. Do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, yes. In that way. Yeah. And it just it made me think that, you know, I feel grateful that whenever I had a gun in my hand back then, I didn't pull a trigger, something hold me back. It's probably my kid. Yeah. Now, I've got two beautiful boys. My little son is 13 and a half, mm-hmm. probably the same age when I, when I was in the rebel. Yes. And I've got an 18-month-old little daughter. Yeah. So I look back now and say, okay, maybe this is the reason, because mm-hmm. they're the main reason I'm here. Yes. Maybe because I brought them here. I mean, maybe that's why I was kept. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell myself anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I had, what I'm trying to say is I had mad people, people who are very, very mad. I had this guy. Every time he's mad, he load up his gun. What happened is, if we calm, if we calm him down, the only way he relaxes the bullet that he put in the chamber, he has to shoot it out. 
Mm. He never take it out and put it in the magazine. Yeah. He say, you, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Psst. Yeah. That, that's, you know, that's I went now when I, when, I, when I rewind back, it, it give me a goosebump. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the story that other child soldiers tell me, they make me, you know? Yeah. So I want to take you back to something that you experienced in the jungle and it was watching your first what you thought was more or less a training video of commando uh, with and and you were oh. in the jungle and you experienced a black and white television that they they showed you a movie and uh, well, you thought it was real at the time but when you came to australia you came to realize that it wasn't a, so and what that's done for you now on a positive note with your journey well i think we're in the jungle you know where there is no no light nothing but the soldiers some of the older soldiers had a we had a generator the soldier came on that night they had a generator they had a tv it was just as big as my crave you know what i mean mm. and they turned the generator on to get the power to get the tv going and they put a movie on and the movie was commando and i was the thing is because all the big boys at the front holding the gun, and then we here at the back. Some of us has to climb the tree to watch the movie, and and the TV was about probably maybe ten to fifteen meters away, you know. So we have to climb the tree to just watch, and you just see this white guy jumping out of the plane, and he land in the swamp, and there's no scratch. And I'm thinking, how does he do it? The big boys say yes from another world. So I used to believe it. I thought it was real. Yeah. And then when I went to Kenya, I started watching a lot of movies, you know, Indian movies on Kenyan television. And then I came to Australia and they said, hey, that's not real. This is just acting. And that's how I sort of like, okay, I said, I don't want to be an actor, but I just want to be in the movie, the background, just to meet people like Arnold, <laughs> which, I end up, which I end up doing. I met Chris Hemworth, I met Idris, you know. I met a lot of famous people on set. Not just shook hand with them, but yeah. I work with them. So do you know what I mean? You've you've been an um, an extra in some movies, including Aquaman and and yeah. ones like that. Thor Ragnarok, In Between Us, Aquaman, and some TV series. Yeah, I've been on there. So and I also play a role in Safe Harbor. Safe so, Harbor plays more role as a refugee. I play the real character. Yeah, real character in life. Mm-hmm. on TV, yeah. you know, and I felt, I said, why does everything has to be real? Why can't it be acting? Do you know what I mean? Because I wanted to act, but I play as a refugee, which is the real refugee that came here, yes. which is me. Yes. Even though I was acting, but, you know, I, yeah. felt, I felt good, you know. I just, I just, I felt like, oh, I wish it was English, because I want to speak English, but I had to talk in a different language. So everyone starts their journey somewhere. So you are putting your foot in the door of, of these um, movies as extras and then get a, speak, a small speaking role. Oh, yeah. So you're really starting the journey now in, into acting and so. that space. And your book and your story, and hopefully they don't typecast you as the refugee in every yeah. series of things. Because mm-hmm. even though you have that experience and you're playing that real role, yeah. you're trying to... Um, learn the craft and become an actor within your own right. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't end up playing 
a part in your own story in a yeah. movie that may I know who to play. <laughs> yeah. If so. they make a movie out of it, I like to play Anya. Yeah. Because I still got that rage that I learned yes. when I was a child that I can bring out on set. Do you think you know I mean? do you think that that would also be because this has been a huge healing journey for you even though it, a lot of people you said in your culture do not talk about how these things make them feel that they're mm. not like they don't talk about their mental health issues and things like that this has been a huge journey for you do you think if you had the opportunity to play that role in a movie um of that tormentor role and the the person do you think that you would that that would also add to your healing yeah, thanks. I'm already healing. Yeah. You know, like, you know, whatever happened to me is there. It will never go away. But I find a way of controlling it myself. Yes. Like trying to do other things and not think too much at the time. There are moments when I just I break down. Yeah. But there has to be something that trigger me. Mm-hmm. So Tales of a Child Soldier, The Lost Boy is the book. You can get this from uh, online Amazon um, in most bookstores, including uh, Target and Big W as well, both online and in store, and uh, probably at a good price from what you've told me. So yeah. so um, for those international people that are viewing, people with a passion, I'll make sure I put links in the description for you to uh, purchase your copy of the book. It's obviously a, a story that, is worth telling so i appreciate your time in doing it is there anything you'd like to say to the audience if you want to speak to the camera what sort of message do you have for anyone i just want to let everyone know that it's good to forgive because if you forgive you got more chances of moving forward you know and another thing too that i worked out is good to talk about your past because when you talk about your past it heal you you know, because if you hollow it, it's just like a bomb ready to explode. But when you talk to people about it, you get help. It doesn't matter how you get help, but you do get help. Yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate that you are here today to tell your story, and I encourage people to go to the description for more information on where they can get the book. So thank you very much for your time. And, thank you for having and me. And sharing your story, and it, it, it's an amazing story, and hopefully one day we see a movie made of it and you acting a role in it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.